0: Hey everybody, it's Mark Thompson, and I have the privilege every week of talking to senior leaders and chief executives who are changing the world. Imagine if one week or one month you didn't get paid. I mean, think about it. The check didn't come, the credit didn't happen in your bank statement. I think you'd be pretty upset. Well, a guy who has hundreds of millions of people waiting to get paid is the person who is running the chief technology function at ADP, the largest payroll processing company in the world. He's former chief strategy officer at the company as well, so nobody knows more about how people get paid on planet Earth than this guy. Listen to how Don talks about how he's transforming that function and the leadership opportunities that exist all over the world. Welcome, gentlemen, to the Stanford CEO Summit. I'm so delighted to have two thought leaders here who are really making an a extraordinary impact on technological change. And today I think is a a double treat because we get to talk to someone who has also done such deep research in helping empowering teams in organizations and thinking about how that from the standpoint of a company that's known from payroll uh, to all the other permutations of integrating the needs of the employees and, and the systems that are required to really change those needs uh, in terms of development and, and processes going forward. So Don, thank you for being with us. Um, Pranay, I appreciate you being here. And I thought I would start off with this question around the research that you've been doing, which has been a reflection of rapidly changing times and what you've learned about how to keep teams engaged and, and how that really works with the business model at AEP.
1: Yeah, no, I'd, I'd be delighted to, and thanks so much for, uh, for having me here. Um, you know, the research that we've we've done at our, our ADP Research Institute really focuses on this notion of, of people and performance uh, in the work environment. And what we found having, having done these studies globally uh, with very large populations of, of tens of thousands of, of individual workers at a time, the, the key thing that comes out more than anything else is that the variability of performance and engagement is greater within a company than it is across companies. Meaning if I look at the mean of all the companies, and then I look at the mean of individual teams within companies, it's clear that there is much more variability inside a company. So there's not an overall, much much as we, we sometimes like to think about, I have my overall company culture, but that is received differently uh, for different people throughout the organization. And fundamentally, you know, that, that core atomic unit uh, is, is the team. And then the most critical role in that that world is the individual team leader. So, so much of my my engagement at work, of my resiliency now as we've extending it uh, into this world of of post pandemic, are are we seeing burnout in terms of the workforce? So much of it is dependent on the team leader themselves. And what we found it it predated the pandemic, um, but then became even more pronounced Uh, post-pandemic, the most important thing is how in touch the team leader is with the individual team members. Are they paying attention to them? Are they checking in frequently? Are they addressing their needs? And we found is the more that the team leaders who are, you know, more frequently giving attention to the needs of their team members, a multiple higher of team level engagement, again, pre-predating the pandemic, my own experience, uh, Within my organization, as we went into a virtual environment, uh, that became an even greater need now if I don't have everybody kind of around me down the hall to like a forced ritual to say, let's just make sure I'm checking in with everybody on a regular basis. And then it's leading to much higher levels of resiliency and, and lower incidence of what we'll call stress-related burnout kind of post-pandemic as we're in this, uh, I'll call it uh, all mostly all virtual world to really have folks feel like they're still part of a team, even if they're working in a remote setting.
0: When you think about that dimension of the workflow and how this is, in a sense, the new normal, how does that back integrate to the rest of the work you do as a company and the relationship people have with their incentives and their pay and all the other attributes in addition to that recognition and check-in communication process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the first thing is is being able to just connect the dots on uh, on the organization. Because the the other thing that we find is um, companies don't really have a good handle on on the actual team structure uh, of their organization. They'll have a view of the organizational chart, right? The functional roles, but most teams are are cross-functional in nature. And so the first thing you can't really see is well, who who are who? What are the teams that I have? Who is on them? who are the team leaders? How many teams is somebody on? That's another one we don't talk about. Again, we think about a functional view of a, an org mm-hmm. chart and it's this kind of world of one-to-one relationships. And yet, again, from our research, we know the majority of workers are on multiple teams and most of those teams are not actually reflected in the org chart. So then who is the team leader? So then the tools that we bring to bear, we try and create a much more flexible Dynamic view of the organization. We almost we approach it bottoms up. So rather than you know kind of top down superimposing. Well, here's the org chart and here's that box. This box here. That's where you fit into the org chart. Uh, we take the opposite view and we actually ask people. Well, what teams are you on? And then they tell us. And then we can dynamically build uh, a real working view of the organization from from the bottoms. The only way to do it. Otherwise, you know, you're constantly trying to chase after these things top down. You know, within my organization, um, we take this very, very seriously, as you might imagine. And so when you talk about, you know, rewards and incentives, we look very carefully at this, this really critical metric, and we call it the, the managerial attention score. So we ask the, uh, the individual workers, hey, has your team leader checked in with you about mm-hmm. your priorities or your needs? How frequently are they checking in? Very simple question. Very simple, one basic question. And we look at that attention score and what we can see, and we've got really good data on this, is that um, engagement levels are higher, turnover levels are lower, and back to the performance levels in some cases where we have really good hard performance data, think think sales. We can look at, well, what is the quota attainment of of a seller who has a highly engaged and attentive team leader versus one who does not? And we can see a materially significant difference in terms of the, the performance and the engagement level of a team member where they have a, a, an attentive team leader. And so we we actually track that that attention score um, and utilize it when we evaluate our managers for how they're doing in terms of leading their teams.
0: Marcus Buckingham is a part of your organization. It's a was a, an integrated movement within the organization I think to have uh, have his insights here could you talk about how that's part of the way you innovate when you bring in voices like that thought leaders and and those who have an ability to weigh in on the management strategy
1: absolutely and it, and it was a very deliberate uh, strategy for us as, as you pointed out uh, mark you know we've always been known uh, at ADP for, the more transaction-heavy side of human capital management, payroll, um, also time and labor management, benefits administration. Um, And and we knew we wanted to really raise our our game into the more, as I said, the people and performance side um, of the equation. And and that's one where we looked at it and and realized that uh, we didn't have the skills uh, in-house necessarily to go do that. Um, we were interested in this notion of, of uh, dynamic team-based organizations. We'd actually been doing sort of our own modeling on that, um, but having met you know Marcus several times and seeing what a thought leader he was in this space, it was just a, a, a really great uh, marriage to bring him in. And effectively, you know, he took over and, and leads now that part of the ADP Research Institute. Somebody who is you know, a, a world-renowned thought leader and researcher that, that we didn't have in-house. And so it was a good uh, marriage of, you know, like-minded thinking, uh, but bringing in a, additional skills. And, you know, like Marcus with his team brought in PhD-level um, uh, econometricians, um, psychologists, uh, behavioral psychologists, employment psychologists, the types of skills that we didn't have in-house. And that's why it made sense for us to look at an, uh, an acquisition deal like that and I think it's worked out uh, extremely well since then.
0: Yeah, I, when I think about the work that you've done as a strategist as well and a product developer uh, in this area, uh, I was talking with Pranay earlier who is focusing on AI and machine learning and, and large data sets. Pranay, you have a, a point of view about this in terms of how we can get a, a deeper understanding into how the organization operates uh, internally and externally. Um, what question would you have for Don with reference to, to this kind of uh, evolution of the use of the technology and the deeper research on the team side?
2: Yeah. So, you know, clearly ADP has uh, some very, very uh, powerful and uh, I would say in a very unique position to have some very privileged kind of data here, right? Uh, you're seeing, you know, millions and millions of people in the workforce and uh, uh, and and you're getting a view of you know uh, how those people are moving around, and you know you're getting view into payroll information and all of that kind of uh, a lot of information of that nature, um, and so at least uh, I would imagine that there is some you know very uh, great opportunity here to help uh, your customers, which are typically you know employers. Uh, do a superior job of uh, managing their workforce and their workforce productivity and stuff like that. Uh, is that something that you know you're considering? You thought of are there tools that you're looking to create and take to marketplace around that?
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point. We've we've been on that for a for a little while now. So just to just to dimensionalize it uh, worldwide, uh, any given pay period, we pay about 40 million people. Uh, due to natural turnover in the workforce, that means we'll probably touch about about 50 million people. Um, but back to that, the 40 million stat on a on a pay period basis, um, you know, that implies if the average worker gets paid uh, biweekly, um, roughly a billion uh, transactions a year, um, and and each transaction is so rich with data because we see not only um, uh, compensation, we can see hours worked, we can see locations worked, which becomes very very interesting. So, um, for instance, early on. Uh, in the uh, in the pandemic, uh, we were looking weekly at um, trends around hours worked uh, and wages paid and I think we were able to uh, effectively call the bottom internally among ourselves. We saw it the first week of May that we hit bottom and then things actually started to to turn back around and we could see that in the data and and the frequency of the data. But um, lately we've been going after some really uh, interesting use cases on on a couple of different dimensions. Some of them are are workforce um, planning related uh, the way you describe it. So for instance, working with a a large uh, franchisor, it's a very well-known brand. Um, I've eaten there many times myself. Um, And they're thinking about where should we locate our next um, franchise outlets. And yeah. so they like to look at the data that we have because we can see not only where income is earned, um, but where it resides. So we could even see commuting patterns, right? Um, yeah. And where people are moving to. So we can see trends around gentrification of certain neighborhoods or, or not in, in others. And we've actually started to have some interesting conversations with um, state and uh, economic development organizations and urban planners who want to use our data in order to help them understand, you know, how um, work patterns are changing. Um, you know, the people who have stopped commuting, what are the income levels? What does that imply for my, my tax base uh, in the future? Um, we're actually quite proud uh, of the fact that we also work with the, the Federal Reserve um, and they've, they've published papers about it. They've talked publicly about the fact that they use our ADP data, we give them a feed uh, in their in their uh, annual uh, assess or their periodic assessment of of how to set interest rates, so there's a, a tremendous amount of of interest in the data. Um, I would say, as it stands right now, you know the the field of of human capital analytics is still at its very very early stages. Absolutely. So the types of of uh, yeah the types of metrics I've talked about in the use cases. Um, are are really good where we have you know some objective facts, things that we can count how many workers, how many hours, how much pay, where did they move to, where did they move from um, but now we see a lot of interest um, in terms of well, how can I understand you know workers' skills level, can I recognize patterns you know do I have the ability to make recommendations around who could be a good fit for a particular role? Um, could I recommend to an individual? What's some potential learning that they could take or development to enhance their their skills for the jobs of the future? And those become much more interesting conversations. They also trip us a little bit into an area that I'm I'm also very passionate about, which is the field of, of AI ethics, mm-hmm. um, because we do have to be very careful. And I think there's been some uh, a, a number of, of public studies uh, published out there about you know perhaps algorithms run amok. Uh, so uh, one of the things that we've done is started an AI ethics board uh, with a mix of of both internal um, experts in fields like uh, privacy employment law, etc, but also uh, external academics uh legal counsel just to make sure that we're staying on on the right side of of that ledger if that makes sense yeah absolutely
2: absolutely yeah
0: when you think about that development and evolution of the innovation and new products uh, and in a time of increasing uh, migration across the country you must be seeing as you were referring to the data earlier about kind of where where the payroll resides and where where the people are and now that they know they can work remotely I imagine you're probably witnessing firsthand the massive shifts in population in the country how would you start to characterize what you're seeing there?
1: Yeah, well, I think the the biggest one that we're seeing, of course, is, um, you know, you had urban centers. Think New York, think San Francisco, that were that were large commuting hubs. San Francisco, in particular, if you look at at how much income was earned there versus how much actually resided there, actually a fairly small portion resided in San Francisco. Most of that would 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 come into San Francisco. To I mean, the the, the daytime population of San Francisco. Uh, was was uh, orders larger than the, the yeah. permanent population, so that was the first thing that we were able to to see is is how that trend reversed itself quite quickly um, no surprise there now the one that we'll be monitoring going forward is okay so when when you know we hit that that moment where everybody stopped coming into the office those who could obviously the, the other thing the data tells us by the way is we do spend a lot of time talking about the I'll talk, call it the, the, the office worker category who does have the potential to work remotely. There's still yeah. a lot of people who never, you know, uh, stopped going into their workplace. Maybe it's not an office, but it could be a hospital, a fire department, you think any, anyone in the manufacturing, the construction, the building trade. So the, the one thing I would, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out is we're actually not talking about the majority of the workforce. majority of the workforce is actually still going into their primary place of, of work. But there was a large share of what I'll call office workers, typically skew uh, white collar, who stopped commuting and all that income, you know, stopped coming into those cities. So now the pattern that we'll really be interested in is, well, what happens as we start to open back up, how many of those folks return, how many of them stay remote? We hear a lot of organizations talking now about going to more flexible work arrangements, um, We'll be watching that very closely in the data. Uh, we haven't seen uh, enough of a reversal of the trend yet to to make any declarative statements, but uh, but we're gonna be watching that closely and I think we'll be able to um, very early on in the process.
0: That's interesting. When you think about doing innovation in an organization that's been addressing technological solutions to employer problems and and, and solving those issues for uh, organizations as, as grand as the Federal Reserve to, to many tens of thousands of workers. How is it that you, you lead that kind of change even without the crisis? Uh, how do you encourage people internally to start to address that? I mean, there's a lot of, in a sense, older tech companies that have a, a wrestling match between what's really worked in the past and, and then how to really start to embrace new needs as you identify them from customers. Uh, as a strategist, how, how would you really coach other executives to think about that uh, intrapreneurship that's necessary?
1: Yeah, and, and it's, it's a really great question because it's not easy. And, and I won't you know pretend that, that we were able to pivot on the dime there. I, I would tell you a couple of things that were critical. Um, first and foremost uh, was we had the greatest support from, from the top down. So not, not only from uh, our CEO, Carlos Rodriguez, but also the, the, the ADP board of directors. In fact, you know, there's been um, you know a little bit of a changeover of, of the ADP board in a positive sense and, and bring in a number of new directors who have more of a technology background. So you can see not just at the CEO level, but all the way up to the board level, that level of top-down support is critical. And and the second thing we had to do was really think differently about every aspect of our innovation approach. So we started out with um, where we do things. We opened up new innovation hubs at scale. I've seen some other organizations that may treat it uh, a little bit like, um, I'll use the term window dressing. You know, the, for instance, within ADP, we've, our, our total technology organization worldwide is 10,000 people. You know, you can't just, you know, open an office of 20 folks in a remote location and expect that that's gonna actually move the needle. So we did this at at scale. You know, we started with our flagship innovation center uh, in Chelsea, uh, in in New York City. Well, it's often referred to affectionately as a a Silicon Alley. Um, We thought about about the Valley, uh, but quite candidly, um, uh, Chelsea or or New York City was considered probably the number two best skills market uh, for tech talent. But it also, since our headquarters is in New Jersey, being that's very close by, that was important for us to say, okay, if we're going to do this, we can't have it on the other side of the country or the other side of the world. We want it close enough to us so that we can um, maintain connectivity to the core business, but at least far enough away to give some independence and, and breathing room. So in our, our Chelsea location, which was the first one, that's a, a 400. Uh, Person uh, office. We opened up additional locations like that, you know, brand new innovation centers. We did one in Pasadena. Again, why Pasadena? Well, first of all, I'd say Pasadena is a little bit underrated um, in terms of of, it gets maybe a little overshadowed by Big Brother to the north, but some really good uh, technology. You've got Caltech there, you've got Cal Poly, you've got JPL. So, really, really strong tech talent, but also closer to uh, an ADP. Uh, large-scale traditional um, office so that we could maintain that kind of connectivity. So 400 people in Chelsea, 600 people in Pasadena. So now I'm talking about a 1,000 people of a total workforce of 10,000. Now you're at scale. Now you're not mm-hmm. dabbling. Um, I think that's probably more than anything else that, that's, that shows that level of commitment. And then we really made a strong effort to bring in I would call it different talent than than what we normally might have done. And and I think having those offices and those locations was critical to us being able to attract uh, a different type of resource. One of the things we're really proud of is we even changed our our hiring methodologies. You know, traditionally, we would have what, you know, consider a more of a a bureaucratic process, multiple rounds of interviews that would stretch over many, many weeks or even uh, months. And, uh, you know, we're sort of trying to pitch ourselves as a a new uh, ADP, one that's more innovative, one that's more agile. And I couldn't do that and then drag somebody through a 10 week, three round, 15 interview uh, process. Yeah. So we went to something we called hiring days um, where we would batch folks in, run them through uh, a gamut of, uh, of paired interviews, meet up uh, at the end of the day and make a decision right there on the spot. And we didn't bring somebody in in the morning and have an offer letter in their hand by the end of the day and even more importantly too because then we'd we'd have the historical i would call it very uh, extensive background checking process we went to something we called conditional offers which is um you know in our business obviously there's some some aspects where we do handle a lot of, of of money on behalf of our clients so we we do need to do background checks and take them seriously um, but we would bring people in with a conditional offer and say, we'll do the background check in parallel. And so now I can say, here's your offer letter today and you can start on Monday. Um, and that was just, that's just one example of us changing processes. We had to do a number of different things like that. But if you're going to re, you know, reposition yourself you need to attract different talent, you need to have the recruiting process match the brand as an example and do it at scale. And so I think that was really the the difference between what I've seen um, in terms of some other organizations that likewise try and uh, and 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 make this transition towards a more innovative focus, but more they're like sprinkling it on top as opposed to baking it into the cake. If
2: you'll pardon my metaphor, there.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: In fact, uh, I can probably chip in a little bit over here to the same uh, question, right? In the in the way we're uh, handling this at fractal and uh, in our business we are largely working with you know large corporations fortune 500s you know multiple corporations like uh, like adp uh, to help them uh, you know get better, to to create better digital transformation deliver better outcomes using ai engineering and design And it is quite easy for us to, uh, you know, sort of become victims of our own success, doing the same thing again and again for the clients, because there is something that's working for them and you can continue to do that. Uh, So how do we sort of, you know, innovate or invent on behalf of the client and look at doing things that may be a few years out? Uh, So one of the things that we uh, did at Fractal is this whole notion of, you know, ideas to business. And uh, sort of almost created an internal, you know, venture funding or, you know, seed funding sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of a notion here. And people within the company were free to come up with ideas. Uh, And, uh, you know, our team would look at that. And if it made sense, you'd get some seed money. Uh, Go out and take the idea, uh, do a proof of concept, prove it. And if it passes that first toll gate, then you get some additional money. If it passes the second toll gate, you get some more money. And uh, eventually, the idea could be something that could fuse back into the main business as an offering to our clients, or sometimes it could just get spun off as a separate entity. So as an example, you know, one of our most uh, powerful uh, spinoffs out of this is Cure.ai, Q-U-R-E.ai, uh, where we've applied computer vision to doing uh, chest X-ray diagnostics. Uh, the company is now funded by Sequoia. Fractal continues to be a big shareholder and but very importantly I mean it's a thousands and thousands of people's chest x-rays are being scanned through that for lung cancer for COVID and stuff like that so I think uh, uh, for us what we found was that being able to uh, create these small teams with a very you know sharp focus around a particular idea and putting them away from the main sort of you know business not creating a confusion or distraction around you know what are you doing for my client now and stuff like that, we found that to be very, very helpful. And being able to back that with the right toll gates and capital and all that, yeah.
0: Mm. You both think about build versus buy. You're both hinting at, uh, Don was talking about how he built that in terms of scale internally. Um, we heard from Pranay just now talking about how he ended up partnering with others and getting venture capital from the Valley. Uh, what would be the way you kind of frame that for a new executive who's thinking about making those choices? Don?
1: Yeah. So we have a we have a, a process that that uh, you know a framework that we utilize to go through that. And I, I hinted at a little bit before when we were yeah. talking about the the acquisition of, of of Marcus Buckingham's company. One is, you know, of course, as a it's build by and and partner. So we we have a strategic uh, importance kind of filter and threshold. You know, if it's if it's critically important, we want to own the IP. So we prefer to either build or buy. But if it's you know, not as much. We're, we're happy to partner. We have an active marketplace of partners as well. Sometimes, by the way, the partner can lead to the buy channel. If you see something that, you know, we partner with and becomes very, maybe we didn't realize how much, how important it was, but the the customers get to vote too. Once we've crossed that threshold, um, then it really comes down to, okay, do we have the skills um, in-house or not? Uh, as I mentioned in the case of, of uh, the acquisition of the Marcus Buckingham company, that was an area that we had, it was, it was strategically important to us, but we had no experience with in terms of uh, uh, psychometricians um, and, and research and behavior-based research psychologists. We, we knew we had to go uh, external for that. You know, there are other things that we're doing that we think are a little bit more core, um, that we're building out of our innovation lab. So we, what we're doing there, for instance, is our next generation um, of human capital management. You know, I talked about this, uh, this organizational modeling that we're doing, some of the data science work that we're doing. Uh, we're even building a, a next generation uh, payroll platform on the public cloud. You know, that's kind of core to us. It's in our wheelhouse. We think we have the capacity. And then it just takes a really good realistic assessment of what is our in-house skill set. Do we have that or do we need to go and find it externally because it's just much more available in the outside world?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, how about, how about you, Pranay? How, how have you been thinking about that? Uh, you've been spawning some of these satellites coming off of this base of intelligence that you've gathered in the AI work that you've done.
2: Yeah, uh, equally, you know, we realize that uh, clearly we don't, we don't have the ability Uh, to, you know, build everything ourselves at the speed at which we need to for our client base. Uh, So we do have a, you know, uh, a dedicated acquisitions team that is constantly scanning the marketplace. Um, We look at it in a couple of ways. One, of course, you know, what is needed by our clients today? What might be needed by them in, in a few years? We also look at it from the landscape of, you know, technology and capabilities. You know, what do we think we should have as a, Leading edge AI company and uh, where are the gaps, right? So we look at that, and and then really, you know, you're looking at uh, the 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 quality of the product or the quality of the IP, uh, the quality of the team. Uh, one of the things that you know, uh, one of our gurus, uh, Ramcharan, uh, said in one of the conversations with us is that, you know, clarity is worth more than 10,000 points of IQ. And they said that <laughs> that really applies really well to acquisitions, because I think you're going in hypothesis has to be very clear. Why are you looking to buy the company? Are you, you know, looking to buy it for a particular piece of IP? Are you looking to buy it for market access? Are you looking to buy it for the founding team? Uh, and then I think equally important, do you intend to keep it separate and let it maintain its identity and continue to do its stuff? Do you intend to, you know, bring it into the main fold and merge it into your current product offering and the current team and so on? I think all of those points of clarity, uh, you need to have upfront uh, to create a higher likelihood of success. Uh, even then success is hard, but I think without that clarity, uh, you're bound to fail. Uh, so those are some of the things that we look at. And um, I think we'll continue to learn along the way. It's been interesting. We've made the uh, I think about six or seven acquisitions, and there is you know pretty long stream that's you know uh, available, and I think we'll be doing many more.
0: When 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 I think about the conversations that you have strategically in an organization, it's natural, and I'd love to close around this area of the interaction that you have with your board of directors, both of you, uh, Don. You've had uh, a couple of times that you've mentioned how they played a, an important role, as you think not only about acquisitions but also talent management. And I know that in, in your board situation, you even have interactions among senior executives on the team. Could you talk about the the nature of getting mentoring from the board and also the relationships that you have uh, with your board?
1: Well, yeah, I feel very fortunate uh, in that regard. I think I think the board uh, that we've we have at ADP is not only it's it's super strong with the the, the caliber of the individuals, but um, as I talked about, it's it's actually you know kind of self. Uh, transformed along with the mission. Um, so one of the things, for instance, that I find it's it's interesting. It's um, maybe even a little bit unusual uh, for organizations such as such as mine is uh, they put together a subcommittee of the board just focused on on technology. You know, every board has its typical audit, NAM, etc. Um, compensation committee. So uh, we have a technology advisory committee. And uh I find that to be enormously valuable to be able to you know tap into the, the expertise of some really world-renowned uh, uh board members that we have. And and it's not just in in the committee meetings or in the board meetings, it, it's the sessions in between um where you know I'm able to get a lot of good mentoring and, and feedback from multiple board members. And and our board's very engaged to the point where they really encourage, you know, not just at, at my level but then even getting to the next levels down in the organization. So uh, always encouraging us to bring forward um, who the future leaders are and getting them uh, more exposure to the board uh, early, uh, early and often. And so, by the way, all the topics that we've talked about here today, you know, we discussed at length uh, and continue to discuss at length um, in our board conversations and just having that, that dedicated forum to talk about the technology transformation of the company, for again an organization as you described in in our situation, which is a, a long standing, long tenured company that's trying to do something different, um, has been has been quite remarkable. And again, talking to my peers in other similar organizations, um, it it seems to be somewhat uncommon that that some of them are actually uh, dare I say jealous that we have that <laughs> level. of of board access and 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 support, um, which is, as I said at the beginning, without that, I don't know that we we would have been as successful.
0: It's an extraordinary relationship. And it's uh, it's it also says a lot about you and and how they want to invest in the most senior people uh, on the team. How about you, Pranay, as a as a closing thought around that? You're private equity funded, uh dons at a in a in a public
2: setting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that uh, I think board relationships and board compositions and the role that boards play, uh, uh, they, they must clearly vary by uh, the needs of the company and the stage of the company. Uh, and therefore, you know, uh, who you have on your board and for what kind of support, I guess it varies with the life cycle of the company. Uh, for us at this point of time, it really is uh, all about uh, growth. Right. We're in an industry that, uh, you know, is really the growth is limited by our imagination and our ability to execute. Right. And so how can the board contribute towards, uh, uh, you know, us leveraging this platform to deliver, create so much more value for the world and in the process, uh, grow fractal. Um, it comes around to things such as, you know, where should you focus your energy uh, you know how to make sure that you know you're not uh, too distracted or dispersed by so many shiny toys and objects that are out there you could you know be chasing so many different things because everything looks like a tremendous opportunity uh, mm-hmm. how do you get in the right talent I think you know getting that sort of uh, constant feedback uh, from someone who's sufficiently close yet sufficiently distant right not that uh, entangled in, in every everyday uh, work to give you a little bit more objective inputs around you know where you're underleveraging your talent and where you might be, you know, uh, might have gaps, right? So I think that, uh, I think a lot of inputs around the acquisition strategy um, and stuff like that. So I think, uh, and, and, you know, I think another really uh, important factor. So we've got um, two members from the private equity APACs. Uh, we've got uh, uh, our initial, uh, you know, angel investor, who's himself a very successful first-generation entrepreneur. And then we have Gavin Patterson, uh, who was the, who's right now the president of Salesforce and uh, the former CEO of British Telecom, right? Uh, so, again, getting inputs from them uh, also around, you know, as an example from Gavin, you know, just uh, how, do you, how do you grow as a CEO and a leader, right? Uh, as the company is growing and evolving from one stage to the next, right? Uh, though, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, lot of interesting input, both around strategy, talent, um, and even some personal coaching. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to thank you both for the opportunity to, to learn from you and, and explore a very unique way that you've been going to market and continuing to evolve the business and not only responding to changes and crises in the marketplace, but also leading the next generation. So thank you, Don. Thank you, Pranay. And uh, no good deed goes unpunished. You're going to be invited back. Uh, and we'd love to have a deeper conversation about uh, leadership and the management in this new world. So thanks again, guys.
2: Much appreciated. Thank you. It was my honor to be, both, to be with both of you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. And likewise.
0: Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. And please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.